Hello, Victory Charlottesville. This is Pastor Brett Fuller. I'm here today to speak to you on the topic of directing adversity. But before I get there, I sure want to say congratulations to you for having made it through the most difficult period of our existence with respect to what it means for church to continue in a way that is not really endemic to its existence, meaning in-person gathering is the way we do stuff. That's part of being church, and yet we've had to do things virtually. For that, I'm grateful. At least there is a virtual connection. But I am not satisfied because I know that there's something more, and that's an on-ramp to talk about the more. Soon we will be able to gather together in person, and for that, gosh, I'm grateful, and I'm looking forward to it. I don't know what it looks like. I don't know when. I don't know where. But I do know that Pastor Paul and the team are working very, very hard to secure a location in the future for us to be able to gather again. I'm proud of the way the team is working. I'm proud of Pastor Paul and his oversight. And I'm proud of you for sticking in here, hanging in here in this virtual reality until we could meet together in person. Bless you. Uh, I have a unique role in the life of this church. It's not very significant. It's just unique. I happen to be the pastor of a church called Grace Covenant Church in Chantilly, Virginia, and we are the sending church for Pastor Paul and Taylor. Um, We are the people that helped birth who you are. We didn't do much. Uh, Paul and Taylor and all the team there did it, did all the hard work. All we did was pray and love and support, and uh, we're just happy to be along for the ride, and we believe in you a lot, a lot. We believe God's going to do some fabulous things for the church there in Charlottesville. There is a destiny that he has carved out for you that cannot be stopped by anything, by no thing. And the purpose for which you have been established is going to be secured. You're going to reach, you are going to reach your ultimate destination as a congregation. Believe it, hold on to it, because what he started in you, he will finish. Philippians 1, verse 6. As I said in the start, I'm going to speak to you about directing adversity today. I'm going to look at the book of Proverbs. And uh, this collection of, of Proverbs in the book of, uh, in chapter 30 of Proverbs is written by a guy named Augur. Now it may be that Solomon wrote the entire book of Proverbs and then kind of penned what Augur said. Because the last two chapters of the book of Proverbs are not ascribed in terms of derivation from Solomon. Uh, They are Augur in chapter 30, and then chapter 31 is about his mama. His mama, Solomon's mama, gives a whole lot of knowledge, just drops it right on us about what it means to uh, be a leader and how a leader ought to be. So we would do well to learn from those. But today... We're going to talk about the way Augur treats information. It's different than the way Solomon did. He's wise, and we think that he may have been one of the wise men in Solomon's court. We're not quite sure. But we do know this, that the way he postulates his readers to get information is different in that he presents riddles. Riddles to which he knows the answer, but you've got to really dig deep and find out what he's talking about. Solomon does things by parallelisms, either a parallelism that is saying one thing and then saying it again to reinforce what you said 
in a, you say it again in a different way to reinforce what you said, or a reverse parallelism, whereby you say it one way and come back and reverse it in order to reinforce what you said in the beginning. Or he says it in a narrative, uh, talking about what somebody did and how they shouldn't have done that, or what somebody did and how they did, should have done that, how they did well. Augur does it differently. And so we're going to look at Proverbs chapter 30, and we're going to look at verses 18 through 19. Proverbs 30, 18 through 19. The writer writes, There are three things which are too wonderful for me, and four which I do not understand. Verse 19, The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship in the middle of the sea, and the way of a man with a maid. Lord, help us as we study your word. Four things in this passage. Um... It's important for us to, to recognize that God wants us to go to another level. So next level living. Secondly, we need to notice the right thing. Thirdly, we need to navigate through life's difficulties. And fourthly, we need to understand something about nuptial bliss. The writer here gives four things. He says, I don't understand these things. But all of them relate to one another. And that all of them seem to deal with the ability of someone to navigate through something that is more difficult than they thought it was going to be and how you can come out better in the end than when you began. And he says, first, you got to understand about the eagle in the sky. Too, too wonderful, Augur says. But he knows what he's talking about. Now, the eagle in the sky is an amazing bird. First of all, eagles are majestic beings. They're huge. They can be between 12 to 15 pounds. They have a wingspan about 7 feet. They've got eyesight that's amazing. And they are carnivorous. They are not herbivores. They eat meat, and they are on the hunt all the time. And he says, I'm not too amazed with an eagle on the ground, but I am amazed. It's wonderful when I see him in the sky because they fly differently than other kind of birds. When you see a robin, Getting from one place to another, he's working. When you see a sparrow, it's even more work. When you see a hummingbird, a hummingbird flaps its wings 30 times a second. A second. And he just hovers wherever he needs to in order to get the nectar he needs to. Dipping his beak down into that thing and then coming back. An eagle... It only flaps in order to get to the place at which it can do this. Now, all birds at some level, maybe not a hummingbird, but all birds at some level can coast. They can stick out their wings and just ride the currents. But there are no birds like the birds of prey that can, can do that because they, they choose to live at a different level. It's rare to see an eagle on the ground. They are usually perched. Why? Because they realize that if they are perched, they have to take very little effort, have to exert very little effort to get to where they need to be in order to soar in such a way that they don't have to expend much energy. Like this. And perching high allows them to experience things called thermals. 
Now, thermals are hot pockets of air that, that come from the Earth's crust, crust the, the, the surface of the Earth. And when the surface of the Earth heats up, it obviously radiates that heat, and, and, and heat rises. And so as the heat rises, it literally produces hot air going up. And these, these eagles can get into it by jumping into the thermals and allowing their wings then to just rest on this pocket of hot air going from one thermal to another, never flapping. Now you say, well, how in the world do they know that there's a thermal? Well, they may be able to sense it by way of heat. But we also know this, that we can see thermals just not as well maybe as an eagle. You know when you're driving down the road uh, in, um, in, in, in the summer uh, and you're, you're, you're looking about a quarter of a mile down, it's a, it's a straight uh, road, and then you, you see this shimmering on the highway. It, it almost appears to be water, but you know it's not because it's too hot of a day and water wouldn't be there and that there's not a cloud in the sky. And the shimmering is actually the heat coming from the pavement from the roadway, and rising. That's a thermal. We can see the difference because there is a demarcation between the temperature of the air and the temperature of the road. And the temperature of the road is hotter than the temperature of the air, and so the temperature of the road lets air around it be heated, and that, that heat then rises. And we can see the refracting of light through that air. And that's the shimmering we see. Well, we think eagles are not in need of that kind of differentiation, meaning they, they don't need a road uh, to get hot in order to see uh, hot air rise. Eagles' eyesight is, is many, many times more distinct and better than ours. If eagles could read, they could read newspaper print at 20 yards. That's how good their eyesight is outstanding. That's why when they're up there circling without flapping their wings at 500 feet, they can see a rabbit on the ground. That perspective gives them a vantage point that allows them to see where dinner, lunch, and breakfast might be. And so they don't need to be close to it. They can be way up. And the thermals allow them to coast as if they were sitting in a chair, yet riding on the thermals. Pastor, how in the world does that relate to me? What is the writer Augur trying to communicate? Well, let me ask you a question. What do you do when it gets hot in your life? When the thermals rise in your life, do you, do you, do you fear? Do you begin to quake? Do you begin to try to figure out how to get out of the heat rather than letting the heat do what it's supposed to do and bring you into a greater place of elevation? How do you handle the heat in your life? James says it like this. Count it all joy. James 1, 2, and 3. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Heat, when it's uncomfortable, get happy. When that trial comes to your door and you have not invited it, it does not have an appointment with you. Yet it just showed up on your stoop, on your porch. You open the door, you greet it, and you say, I didn't invite you, I don't like you. But come on inside and let's fellowship because I plan to be better when you leave than when you came. Rejoice. 
because God wants to make the heat make you better. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect work so that you may be mature, complete, and lacking nothing. The reason we don't like trials is not only because they are difficult to go through and it's hard, but we actually think we are better than we are and we don't need them. We are not as mature as we'd like to be, though we think we are. We think simply because we're not as, as bad as we used to be that we, we really don't need this difficulty, do we, Lord? <laughs> Can't I just go through some instruction? Do I really need to go through this hard time? Yes. You have an elevated view of your own humanity. You think you are better and more than you are, and you need this in order to make you what you think you need to be. Oh, embracing the heat and allowing it to take us to higher elevations. Augur says it's a mystery, but he knew. If we will jump into the heat, if we will let the adversity come to us and embrace it, we can begin to direct it where we want it to go rather than letting the circumstances begin to direct us where they want us to go. The enemy wants to destroy us through our difficulty. He wants to discourage us through our difficulty. He wants to make us quit. But our job is to look at every bit of the, the, the toughness. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. It's coming. Everybody has to go through it, but now that we're believers, it's even more difficult. The enemy's got a big target on us. He doesn't like us simply because we were were made in God's image. That's that's being a part of humanity. But he doubly doesn't like us now because we've been remade in his image. He was able to deal with the flawed humanity that wasn't born again, but this born again thing is a whole new thing to him. And so he's got to do all he can to try to discourage us from the destiny to which God has called us, the inheritance that he's given us as sons and daughters. And so he he crafts these trials. Taylor makes them for you to make you quit. And everything on the inside of us ought to be that which says, I am not quitting. Not only am I not quitting, I'm letting this trial, like the eagle, take me to a brand new level in God. As much as I don't like trials, I have learned that I could not be what I needed to be without them. As long as I submitted to God through it, he made me better in the end than when I started in the beginning. Go to the next level. Secondly, a serpent on a rock. You got to notice the right thing. The serpent is always described in Scripture as this evil thing. You know, you got the serpent in, in the Garden of, of Eden that tempted Eve and made Adam and Eve fall. And the serpent is never a, a redemptive animal. It's not like a lamb. It's not, there was never a time in any of the Levitical ritualistic laws where, they, where, where God says, please sacrifice a, 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 a snake to me. <laughs> never. Uh, this, is, this represents something that is not good. Yet, it's on the rock. And isn't one of the, the greatest questions people have uh, about God and how the enemy in the world works if, if God is God? It's called theodicy. How in the world is, 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 is there a really good God 
that allows a bad devil to exist. If he's all powerful, why didn't he just wipe him out? Why do bad things happen in the world if there's such a good God? I don't know that I have all the answers. And I've read the books on theodicy that help us a little bit, but they still leave you with a question. And I've done my best to try to theologically figure it out. I've come up with some answers, but they, I, don't, I don't know that they satisfy as much as, as I'd like them to, at least not my own soul and surely probably not yours. At least logically they make sense. But the reality is we too often look at the serpent rather than noticing that he's on the rock. We notice the enemy's dealings in the world and what he's doing through the lives of people to mess this planet up but we rarely recognize the God who is sustaining all of us through it. We hardly ever give him thanks. We hardly ever acknowledge, Lord, without your mercy, it would be worse. It could be so much worse. You sustain us, even the people who are disobedient like me and all of humanity. You still allow the sun and the rain to fall upon us. And many commentators will talk about that passage in Matthew chapter 5 where the Father is described by Jesus as being someone who cares for sinners and allows for the sun and the rain to fall. Um, please understand that both of those the descriptions were blessings. One wasn't a blessing and the other a curse. We live in a very vacation-oriented world whereby rain is seen as, as an inconvenience. It doesn't allow us to get out in the sun. It doesn't allow us to play. It doesn't allow us to walk. Uh, and, and have strolls on a beautiful spring day. And so the rain is an inconvenience to suburbanites. But to an agrarian society like Jesus was living in, oh, rains were life. If you didn't have rain, you didn't have food. The arid environment of the Middle East required rainfall. There, there weren't puddles and ponds every place where you could just irrigate the entire land. You needed rainfall in order for your crops to grow. That God provides sunshine, which is life to all the earth and rain, to people who don't love him and don't know him, is amazing. He is that kind. And then on top of that, he sent his son to die for people who won't even worship him. He paid their penalty, and they walk by every day as if somehow he's at fault. He, meaning God, has done nothing wrong. He has done all right. Everything he has done has been right. We have messed up this planet completely. We've messed it up relationally. We've messed it up environmentally. There is nothing that happens on this planet that is untoward that is not, has not been caused by us. And that God doesn't, God doesn't let this planet just disintegrate through our poor stewardship is His mercy. We notice the enemy all the time and we say, how in the world, God, why is this bad happening? How could God who loves humanity so much allow bad to happen? Hear me. There's a lot of bad happening, but it's not because God made it happen. Now here's the thing that's a disconnect. You say, well, he's all powerful. I mean, disease. There are things that ha accidents and things. Why, why didn't he stop that from happening to good people? It, it, let them get the bad people, we say, but not the good people. 
I get it. And that's where my logic falls short. But it doesn't fall short in such a way that I accuse my God. Mm -mm. Because I realize this. Even though some really bad stuff can happen to people that I think don't deserve it, I realize what I do deserve. And I'm not going to get it. I deserve hell. I'm a sinner. I'm a man who doesn't deserve what Jesus did for me. I don't. And as bad as my days might get sometimes, I comfort myself with the idea every day that whatever is untoward that happens to me today can't be near as bad as the good I've received. So Lord, I worship you, even though it might be tough. I worship you. I choose to notice the rock. Notice the right thing and give thanks in your difficulty. That's how you direct that adversity, which is the, the question everybody has. If there's a good and loving God, why does bad happen? Notice the good that is happening and the bad that could happen that's not. Notice the right thing. Direct that adversity to encourage your soul. Thirdly, a ship in the middle of the sea. You've got to navigate. A ship in the middle of the sea is, uh, <clears throat> first of all, if it's bad weather, he, he can't go home because he's halfway. And so he's as far from his destination as he was from his point of origin. So he's stuck. Number two, there are currents and rivers in the sea. I realize the sea looks like this big body of water, but there are rivers in the sea. There are, there are um, uh, massive water flows that are usually temperature-driven that will take you in one direction or another. And you've got to realize how you must navigate through that when you're in a, a flow of water that may not be taking you in the direction you want to go. Thirdly, there are storms and there are contrary winds. The only way people could navigate back then, today we've got GPS, which is great. But back then, you had to navigate by the stars and the sun and the moon and the time of the year. What happens if you were in a storm that was, was hugely adverse, winds at 50, 60 miles an hour sustained for an entire week, and there were no stars to see? You couldn't tell what was what, and you didn't know which way you were going. What if that Oh, a ship in the middle of the sea. That is hard. That is really hard. Why would someone choose to do that when it is easier to walk on land to get where you're going to go or ride a donkey? For us today, you know, it's not an issue, issue with GPS. But wow, why would you do it back then? Because it was the best and fastest way to get to your destination. Why do we choose Christianity? It requires more of a human being than any other religion. It requires first that you die. And then it requires that the life you live after that is one that is dedicated to somebody else who's got the steering wheel. And he will intentionally direct you into difficulty. And you will have to figure out how in the world to navigate when you don't, you don't see the stars. God, where are you now? Ah, I don't know what to do. Where are you now? Why do we go this way? Because it's the best way to get to our destination. There is no better way than to serve God with all of your heart, no matter the difficulty. 
And when you see the difficulty, you realize, well, I must be going the right way. Because it would not be easy if it were the, the, the right way. Because I know my God is going to take me through stuff. If I, the world is going opposite. The world is going opposite. We are fish swimming upstream. And the confirmation of our direction should be that which feels in opposition to everything else. Now, I'm not saying that you need to just be a contrarian, always against something. Don't live that way. What I am saying is do the will of God. And if you do, you're going to encounter a difficulty. And that will be the confirmation somehow that you're doing the right thing. Jesus said it like this. If they didn't like me, if they persecuted me, they're going to do the same thing to you. You have to navigate well. And you've got to figure out how in the world the Lord can help you get to your destination, even though it's difficult getting there. It might take longer than you thought, but you stay on this road. You don't get off this road. You stay on path and watch how God will bring you to your spot of destiny. You navigate like that. You tell the adversity that is coming against you in your direction, I am not quitting. I am, I am keeping my hand on this plow on this rudder, on this steering wheel. I am not deterred. Lastly, nuptial bliss, the way of a man with a maid. <laughs> I don't know nothing about this. I've been married 34 years. I'm still trying to figure out my wife. And she's the best woman I know. She is so much better than me. She's a better Christian. She's a better woman than I am man. She is better in every way. And I can't figure her out. I don't know how she thinks. I say one thing, and, and when, it, when it comes back from her about what I said, I say, how did you, how did you get that from what I said? I, I didn't mean that at all. What goes on in your brain? And she looks at me the same way. <laughs> way of a man with a maid. It's hard. Trying to figure out how to do relationships, isn't it? I don't want to just contextualize this as I close in marriage. I want to contextualize it in relationship. That you're going to have to live with other people who are not like you. You're going to have to be with other people who are not like you. And you're going to have to, if you want to have real significant progress in your life, you're going to have to do it with people who are not like you for a long time. You don't just want to make your relationships utilitarian, that once you enter them and you get what you need, then you go find somebody else and leave that one. That's not scriptural. That's not biblical. You hang with people. You hang with people. Through tough times, through easy times, through prosperous times, through lean times, you hang with people. And if they're not like you, good. Good. Because if they were like you, then the combination of your joining would only amplify your weaknesses. So if they were just like you, you'd be able to do some things and strength that were really neat, but your blind spots would be doubled. Your weaknesses would be doubled. Your inability would be doubled. Why, why choose that? If somebody is not like you, that's probably a good joining for you. Because in the areas where you're weak, they're strong. And then you can do this and be much stronger together. The way of a man with a maid. I know this. I'll give you this one example and stop. 
Communication is a different thing between men and women. As I said earlier, sometimes I don't know what's going on in her brain. And it's not because she's less than. It's because I am. I'm not smart enough to figure out what's happening with her. There is so much communication in thoughts and emotions and, and, and feelings. And uh, it, it all flows together in her. With me, it's real logical. It's just boom, 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 boom. And I don't feel like she feels. And her way of communicating sometimes baffles me. And I'm just not smart enough to pick up on everything. But to, to amplify this point, I have a friend of mine named Tim Stay who's a great pastor in the city. And he's my accountability partner in some ways. And uh, we have lunch every other month. And we talk about our lives and pray for one another. We've been doing this for almost 40 years now. Somewhere around year 20, I come home from one of these lunches and Cynthia asks me, she says, uh, so how was your day? I said, great. That's what we say, men, right? One word answers, headlines only. No details. How was your day? Great. Now, she's looking for more than just great. But I'm not, I'm not interested in giving it. What'd you do? Well, I had lunch with Pastor Tim Say. Where'd you go? Cheesecake Factory. What'd you have? At this point, I'm just thinking, okay, I had, I had salmon. How was it prepared? And I was so frustrated at this point. I, did, I, I manifested my stupidity. I said, do you really care? At which point she said, no, I don't. And then I realized, oh, 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 I'm sorry. I, I, I didn't, I, no, no, that's fine. That's fine. That's good. I don't care. No, I, I'm sorry. I, I don't care. Now, now, men, I, I know you, you, you want your, your wives to not talk as much sometimes, but this is not the version of silence you wish. Three days, nothing. I'm walking around apologizing all day long. I feel like such an idiot. What was wrong with me? It's like when you speak, you say, get those words back, but they're gone. Two months later, I'm meeting with Pastor Tim again. Finish our lunch and walk in the house. Cynthia asks me, how was your day? Oh, baby, it was a great day. (laughs) I went out with Pastor Tim, and we had a great time talking, and I went to Cheesecake Factory. You getting me? Mama didn't raise no dummy now. If I, I, I messed up, and I, I know I don't need to mess up again in the same way. I learned. The Holy Ghost helped me. Oh, we went out. We had a great time at Cheesecake Factory, and I had the, I had the most fabulous salmon. I mean, it, it was prepared like I like it. You know, you like it well done, but, but I like it just a little bit underdone, kind of translucent on the inside, but crispy on the outside, blackened, and it was over a bed of rice pilaf. It was amazing. Had some broccolini on the side, and they brought out this tea that had kind of like mint on the inside with a little piece of mint on top, and then some sugar water I could pour in there so you got the real taste, because you know, sugar doesn't dissolve in, tea, in iced tea. So, got that? Oh, it was great, prepared, perfect and we, had, we talked and shared our lives. It was a great day. And then I had this cheesecake. <laughs> they, they, they call it turtle cheesecake. 
You've got, you got uh, 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 cheesecake and then some caramel on top and then some pecans on top and then drizzled with chocolate. It was outstanding. One of the best desserts I've ever had, dear. And I brought you home one. <laughs> I can't tell you how good of a night it was. The way of a man with a maid. When you find somebody who is not like you, you got to figure out how in the world to make your lives do this so that they don't do this. You got to work at it really hard. Communicate, love, do things that aren't comfortable for you, but are comfortable for them. Even outside of marriage, these principles work. How are you going to deal with the adversity? That is in relationships. You have to make it do what you want it to do for you. Make you better. Make you better. This is how you direct adversity. You let the heat in your life take you to new levels. You notice the right thing in the world, not the wrong. You navigate and you keep your hands steady on the direction. And don't let anything deter you from your destination. And you become better so that other people can become better. Direct adversity like that, and the kingdom of God will expand in your life and in the lives of others. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I'm asking for your grace that you would empower and bless us to live lives that glorify you every day. We thank you for the privilege of being inconvenienced by your will. Bless the hearers and pour out on them a grace to grow up into you faster than ever. In Jesus' name, amen. It's been a pleasure ministering to you, church. Love you much. You're the absolute best. I look forward to seeing you soon. Bless you.